Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about the Women's March on Washington that I'm sure a lot of y'all listening have been talking about, thinking about. Maybe you are planning your itinerary right now as you're listening to this. Perhaps you're even packing for the trip. Making signs. Making sandwiches. Mm, I hope those people are coming with me. Or maybe you're like, uh, no way. I'm not going to go to that. Why on earth would I go to that? Uh, and because of that back and forth and all of the conversation that's been going on. So we decided to take an episode and unpack not only all of the conversations happening around this Women's March on Washington, but also to pull the lens back a little bit and contextualize historically the impact of these kinds of mass demonstrations and ask the question, how effective could this be in terms of changing the culture that we are seeing sweeping into the White House via the Trump administration? Yes, let's give you some deets on this march on Washington that's coming up on the 21st, like Kristen said. So for a while, the Women's March that is happening basically as an answer or response to Donald Trump's election, um, it, it didn't have a location for a while. But now it's going to be at Independence Avenue and Third Street Northwest. But for security reasons, the route actually, as of this recording anyway, hasn't been released yet. But it's going to happen at 10 a.m. So pack those sandwiches, pack those signs, pack some mittens. It's going to be cold. Oof, all of the mittens. And the organizers are insistent on the language of it being a march and not a protest because they say that this event is all about unity and communicating their motto that they have been repeating over and over again that's repeated a lot on the website, that women's rights are human rights, which echoes Hillary Clinton's famous speech uh, in 1995 in China that we talked about in our episode, Who is Hillary Clinton? Um, so they don't want this to come across as a protest, even though in a way it is a protest because they're protesting, in their own words, the rhetoric of the past election cycle. And the organizers are also very clear about wanting to send that message that women's rights are human rights and vice versa to the new administration on their first day in office, because, of course, this is being held the day after the inauguration. And part of the intent of not referring to it as a protest and also not directly calling out president-elect Trump directly in their messaging because they're inviting everybody you know, they're like, you don't you don't have to have voted for Hillary Clinton to want to be part of this march. Um, they're really trying to emphasize this whole solidarity thing, the solidarity around that concept that women's rights are human rights. And the fact, Caroline, that we still have to say that 
uh, is a little disheartening. But they do shout out a number of communities that they want to represent, that they want uh, their voices heard in this march, including communities of color, LGBTQIA communities, indigenous and immigrant communities, and so forth. But it all within all of those identities, um, the the organizers at least circle everything back to women's rights or human rights. Yeah, and that issue of all of these different voices standing in solidarity. So they talk about wanting to march for the protection of our rights, our safety, our health, and our families, recognizing that our vibrant and diverse communities are the strength of our country. So, you know, if you are seeking to bring together a lot of people around a common cause and you are hoping to be as broadly attractive and inclusive as possible, I mean, yeah, I guess women's rights or human rights is a good signpost around which to rally. But um, that doesn't change the fact that this event, this march did arise directly after Donald Trump was elected. I mean, it has an interesting origin story, which I <laughs> I didn't know until Kristen sent me the link, but it, it has to do something with a grandmother in Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, that's that's Reuters words, not mine. Um, and by the way, yeah, I'm always just sending Caroline links. <laughs> it's just a link. It's true. Fest. Um, even though there were a number of people on November 9th or even into the, the wee hours of November 8th, when things started turning south in, in the election, whose immediate response was protest. We have to do something. Um, and also just a general desire to seek out solidarity. And that especially makes sense for this quote unquote Hawaiian grandmother, uh, as she's been referred to by the media, which I, I don't really know why, because she's a, a retired lawyer who, who happens to live in Hawaii and also has grandchildren. Um, <laughs> but her name is Teresa Shook. And, uh, I guess because clickbait. Yeah. Hawaii grandma, you know, in the headlines. Oh, it's a Hawaii grandma who's organizing. Who's who's the one who started this this whole march thing? Oh, you mean a woman from a group that is traditionally invisible and silenced, like women over a certain age, was actually speaking up on the internet and encouraging people to take action. Of course, that makes a headline. Sure, okay, I'll take the devil's advocate side of that though and say that Teresa Shook is a white woman. So while she is perhaps older and that, yes, if you spin it in a clickbaity way of like, oh, this is a grandma. Also, it makes it seem endearing. Um, mm, yeah. But her whiteness and the whiteness of uh, the women who initially jumped on board to start organizing quickly became not to use a very overused word, but uh, I'm going to use it. So to say not to use it is <sighs> redundant. It became problematic. I wonder, too, if part of the media framing of Hawaiian grandma inspires mass march softens yeah. uh, the potential protest element of it because you yeah have that like counterintuitive and a woman over 40 is doing something and people are listening strange um but also it's like oh no grandma yeah. let's check this out is All she right. is she bringing cookies Aww. well because she started this started right as a facebook post where um this hawaii grandmother in quotes who's retired lawyer teresa shook she started a facebook post that was like Oh, Lord, we need to protest. We need to march. We need to do something. And it 
basically took on a life of its own. Someone shared her post with the secret but not so secret Pantsuit Nation Facebook group, a group that was obviously uh, named uh, and inspired by Hillary Clinton or named for and inspired by Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton didn't name it herself, although that would be pretty amazing. Um, and her middle name is Pantsuit. Um, so <laughs> it, it is a direct homage. Yeah. Hillary P.S. Clinton. Mm-hmm. PSR, PSR. Yeah. Clinton. Um, but yeah, it, it, it took on a life of its own and got thousands and thousands and thousands of people talking about having an event in direct response to the election of Trump. And in Shook's case, her living in Maui, P.S. Wowie, so jealous. Um, her living in Maui, Maui was a part of her motivation because, uh, she wanted to be surrounded by a lot of people, um, you know, and, and do something with all of the energy that, uh, and discomfort and anxiety and outright terror that was, uh, sparked in the wake of, uh, the election. And what happened then was a lot of, People like Shook starting their own private uh, invitations to friends to go to Washington, none of them really, you know, being coordinated at all. But now it has been brought under this umbrella of a women's march on Washington. Um, and right now, the national co-chairs of the event are Tamika D. Mallory, who is a criminal justice reform activist. Carmen Perez, who's the executive director of Gathering for Justice. Uh, Linda Sarsour, who is a Palestinian-American Muslim social justice activist and the executive director of the Arab American Association of New York. And one of the original organizers, Bob Bland. And that's a lady, Bob, uh, <laughs> which I really appreciate. Um <laughs> So you're welcome, Bob. I appreciate your name. Uh, but Bland is the CEO and founder of Manufacture New York and a domestic manufacturing activist. So that's great. This seems like as far as uh, a group of co-chairs go, this seems to be really indicative of different voices in activism. It, it includes women of color. That's great. They did kind of take the wheel from some well-intentioned white ladies who tried to get this march going and realized very quickly that they were in over their heads. And hello, they are not representative, as organizers go, of the massively diverse group of people that they hope to get together in Washington. And in exit poll context... This immediate outcry led initially by white women saying, how could this have happened? How could Trump be the president now? Um, women of color were understandably uh, <laughs> side-eyeing because, oh, uh, guess what? A majority of white women voted for Trump, whereas... 96 percent, I believe it's 94, 96 percent of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. So it's like, okay, so uh, we're at the polls doing the work. um, But now you want to uh, feel better about it. Well, and there's also the point of like, did you guys think like racism and sexism were just over? Like, did you just assume like that none of this stuff was a problem anymore and you're acting horrified and shocked and like, yes, let's cry and mourn and grieve and make plans for tomorrow about what to do and how to take this on. But like, we've already been aware of all of these issues uh, and all of this oppression and like, it's just time to get back to work. 
white ladies, pick yourself up. Well, and, and two, it's an extension of ripples of white feminism throughout the election yeah. um, that were echoed in uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, you know, some people label Hillary, Hillary Clinton as the poster woman of white feminism um, because, as we talked about in our episode, more of like a, a biopic, biopod <laughs> episode on her earlier life, um, Hillary Clinton, like like most of us, honestly, but um, her, her political stances have been a work in progress, and uh, she has not always been so intersectional um, in her approach, particularly to um, community uplift. Yeah, and of course, the uh, well-intentioned white ladies who were trying to organize this march uh, for January 21st also got dinged majorly for the original name, which was going to be the Million Woman March, and that, if that sounds familiar, uh, well, it should because it's protest appropriation. There was a 1997 Million Woman March in Philadelphia organized and attended and set up for black women. All of this, too, is happening on Facebook. Yeah. So you can imagine that the tenor of the organizing quickly spiraled because you have women of color, a number of women of color, and sure, there are probably some some white ladies, uh, but whatever, um, but some women of color who are stepping up and sort of stepping into this uh, group hug of solidarity and saying, hey, hey, hey um, no. And there was some defensiveness on the part of organizers and as a spectator on the Internet sidelines, I was not about to touch it with a 10 foot pole because um, my my knee jerk. Oh, God, was people love anything really that perpetuates the stereotype of women as ultimately unable to unify because of catfighting and um, also this bizarre idea that feminists are in complete disarray if they ever disagree on anything, because not only um, should we be perfect in all of our actions, but we should also be a monolith. (laughs) Right, right. So as that initial Facebook kerfuffle was going down, I just kind of kept going about my business and, and honestly was like, I'll just start this little tiny letter called the Do Better Dispatch. I'll write my own thing right now and then figure out what I'm going to do about <laughs> the march once the dust settles yeah. a bit. And I did, fair listeners, I did email Kristen. Apparently, we never speak except for via email. Uh, but I was like, hey, you know, I, I know you're one of my feminist heroes and you're really good at thinking about things big picture i had been planning to go to this march but i'm watching this kerfuffle as you say unfold or what does a kerfuffle do does it like unroll unravel unfold explode i think a kerfuffle splats splat okay yeah i was watching the kerfuffle splat and i was like holy crap uh all of these White ladies are getting really defensive instead of being open minded. Maybe I'm too used to being part of this minty community where people listen to each other and learn from each other. Um, am I a bad feminist for wanting to go to this march and stand in solidarity with 
all of these other nasty women and angry feminists? And I said, no. (laughs) And that it's not about you. And I think, too, that I mean, and I said that not in a harsh way, because I had been it had forced me to think about my feelings and my role and my privilege in all of this post-election fallout as well, um, because part of the defensiveness um, was this sentiment of, well, OK, this is not the time to fight. Let's just all come together. Why? You know, this is why we can't have nice things. Um, but that's such a double standard for women possessing privilege to tell women who do not enjoy as much privilege because we don't we're we're just now feeling maybe an inkling of what is their lived experience a lot of times so we need to get used to and by we i mean i'm i'm gesturing towards myself towards my pasty white self we need to be more comfortable with getting uncomfortable and Caroline, I'm so glad that you emailed me. Um, first of all, you know, to ensure that we kept our daily, uh, <laughs> emails and link sharings up. Uh, we'd never want to fall back on that. Um, but I was glad that you emailed me because it did force me to spend some more time considering all of the nuances. And oh, the big thing that I emphasized in my response to you was my concern that all of the energy going into this one day, particularly from people who are not activists, are not protesters typically, who are getting, you know, their travel arrangements to go up to Washington, that this event will happen and then we'll do our checklist. Did it. We marched. We marched on Washington. We can just go back about our business and That's not how change happens. And one selfish reason why I wanted to do this podcast was to have an excuse (laughs) to spend a week researching um, people who do this kind of stuff as a living, who know the history of civil disobedience and know the nature of effective protest and find out how how impactful are these things? Because we read in history books about, say, the suffrage march of 1913, which we're definitely going to talk about later in the show. Um, of course, we know about the 1963 March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Um, and especially, though, in this day and age where we have such a short cultural attention span, Partly because of the internet and virality and this just, um, this idea that we can just disrupt things, like we're gonna be uber disrupting social justice, <laughs> you know, if we just bombard the National Mall one day. Um, how, how true that can really be? Well, yeah, and also examining and again, listening to the voices of women, particularly women of color, who already have been in this space, that space being activism, protest, marching, agitating for change, etc. Um, because I think there is still in some corners of the Internet, there is still a little misunderstanding and resentment on the part of some white ladies who don't understand, like, why would you criticize this march? We're just trying to do the right thing. And so... We want to highlight people like Rosie Campos, who, for instance, wrote a piece over at Medium raising concerns about 
several aspects of the march, even after the new co-chairs kind of took the wheel. She still had issues with Mallory Perez and Sarsour's association with the Justice League New York City, for instance, or Justice League NYC. Uh, she points out that, you know, that group has drawn criticism in the past for going soft on elected officials, having closed door meetings with officials and politicians rather than putting their focus on grassroots efforts, rather than getting that boots on the ground community engagement. And Campos was really concerned that, you know, is this part of just some sort of like showmanship or performance of activism? Right. Because protest as a mere performance might be very Instagram ready. Yeah, it might get people talking. It might get people like inspired or angry or something. Or it might make us feel better psychologically. Right. It might give us a little comfort that, hey, you know what? Uh, 54% of women who look like me voted uh, that Cheeto with a toupee on into office, but it's okay. Because I did this one thing one time. Um, although Campos did emphasize that, you know, <laughs> we cannot get into the minds of these organizers for and sure. judge whether they are out for showmanship. And, and I, and from what I've seen, um, I, I believe that everyone involved in this organization absolutely wants to see change and absolutely wants to send a clear message. Um, so. Our responsibility as individuals is doing that work of separating the personal from more of the political and the structural and um, holding systems accountable rather than saying, uh, you know, you if you're involved in this, then you are only out to, you know, look good on Twitter for a day um, rather than and that's all I care. about. <laughs> exactly. I mean, in general, not even related to this. Matter. Oh, okay. I just I just want to look good on Twitter, man. You know, everybody's got dreams. <laughs> um so if you're a super supporter and have felt personally defensive by this critique, I think it's worth pausing for a moment and taking your individual self out of it and saying, well, isn't it worth holding groups and uh, structures accountable and institutions accountable? Because ultimately, isn't that what we want to change? Are these systems of power that are in place? And if you have groups that are then attached to that and are you know, reinforcing an oppressive system, then whether it makes you uncomfortable or not, you gotta, you gotta do the work. Because it is so easy when you are uh, existing in a position or sphere of privilege to retreat back into that feeling of comfort. I mean, it's natural. It's human nature to not want to be uncomfortable. But like you were saying earlier, part of moving forward at this point in our country's political history, uh, is forcing yourself to be uncomfortable and get outside that bubble and take action that can make a real and lasting change and not just checking the box of, I marched on January 21st. Also, the irony is not lost on me, listeners, that Caroline and I are saying all these things in kind of a literal bubble. <laughs> that is <laughs> yeah. this podcast studio. We are two white women sitting alone in an echo chamber as... Figuratively, yeah. I as mean, it the, can get. The, although I guess the sound dampening, yeah, it reduces stops the echo. Reduces the echo, but we we do have like a fish tank window to our producer Noel. So 
Okay. So he's, yeah, so he's grinning at us. So, you know, people can, can see in. Right. <laughs> Instagram us, <laughs> tweet us. Now we also, Caroline, have to shout out Brittany T. Oliver because she's an activist who has really led the charge and has stood firm in holding that organizing group, the, the Women's March on Washington group accountable and responsible and is still not satisfied with their messaging in terms of the shift from all white ladies organizing to now a more diverse uh, group of co-chairs mm-hmm. saying that um, <laughs> you still haven't taken responsibility. You still haven't apologized, for instance, to the original organizers of the Million Woman March. Like, just just do it, please. Yeah. And I mean, so on the March website and and FAQ section, they talk about how, you know, we as the organizers recognized the need to be inclusive. But Oliver points out that this does still shirk responsibility for having exercised white feminism uh, from the get-go. And Oliver points out that, hey, you know, this whole, like, all women matter ethos really does not come off as intersectional enough or at all, period. And as Oliver and others have pointed out, in some ways, this initial organizing of the Women's March is not so flattering women's history repeating itself. And y'all, the stakes are too high to do that again. And we're going to get into that when we come right back from a quick break. So this March on January 21st, 2017, will not be the first time that women have organized marches, protests, rallies, what have you, around the election of a president. Um, in 1913, Kristen hinted at this earlier, uh, on the eve of Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, somewhere between five and 8,000 suffragists marched on Washington. Uh, and the march was organized by suffragists Alice Paul and Lucy Burns. And Alice Paul had been inspired by British suffragists working in their own country for the vote. And they are the bulk of the images that you find when you Google suffragists or a women's march or whatever, the images from that 1913 march of all of these white women holding signs that say Woodrow Wilson or Mr. President or Mr. Wilson, like how long must women wait? That's kind of like the bulk of the suffrage and women's march imagery that you find. And even beyond women focused uh, post-presidential election marches um, in 1973, you have 60,000 people show up to protest Nixon's inauguration, which, of course, was linked to a Vietnam War protest. Um, <laughs> there were thousands of people, including some friends of mine who went up to Washington to ungreet W, old George W. Bush, um, in January 2001. Um, but I will say that there are more people than usual who are protesting the Trump inauguration. This was just reported by the Associated Press who talked to uh, the National Park Service and found that they have about four times the number of groups as usual in past inaugurations who have filed for permits 
to protest. So it's not just the Women's March that's well, going to be out there. And it's not just protesting either. Uh, Bikers for Trump will also be holding an event on January 21st alongside or in tandem with or in opposition to the Women's March on Washington. And there has been some concern about uh, the fact that the Trump inaugural committee snapped up a bunch of permits from the National Park Service, almost as, in, in the words of some organizers, as a land grab. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the uh, Women's March couldn't take place at the Lincoln Memorial as desired, because in a very, um, n- uh, it's just a gross contrast, um, the Trump people got there first. Um, so, Anyway, all of that to say is, uh, you know, this is part of our civic history. Well, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely part of our civic history without a doubt. And I mean, specifically having it be staged in Washington, D.C. is something that all of our police and safety officials are used to. And they're going to protect marchers, whether you're there to march with the women uh, against Trump or whether you're there to march with the bikers for Trump. Yeah, that would be a super bummer if the police were like, um, we're just going to pick and choose who uh, we protect. Oh, wait, no, that happens. Ha, ha, uh, hashtag police brutality. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Um, speaking of which, <laughs> we would be pulling a real hard right into white feminism if we didn't talk about a very significant march that did not happen in Washington, but rather in Philadelphia in 1997, and that is the actual real bona fide Million Woman March. And yeah, the the original Million Woman Marchers are actually coming up on their their 20th anniversary, and on Twitter they are still vocally protesting the Women's March that's planned for January because they say like, yeah, even though you change the name, you're still like hardcore white feminists who aren't listening to what happened before. You're not listening to what we have been saying and you're not paying attention to what happened before. And some people have also said, oh, yeah, I mean, (laughs) March on Washington, that already happened 1963. Um, So, uh, yeah, the... All the wrinkles have certainly not been ironed out. Yeah, we can just rename it the Women's March out and about, gadding about in town in Washington. Maybe it should just be the the women kerfuffle. Yeah. (laughs) On Washington. Splat. I'll make that T-shirt. But okay, so in 1997, that march happened in October, on October 25th. And depending on the source you look at, the people you talk to, 300,000 to 2 million participants joined in this whole day that included marches, that included speeches. And very notably, it did not include big names in the movement in the United States. At the time, it was really kind of organized and launched and held as more of a grassroots activism event. I mean, imagine getting that many women, hundreds of thousands of black women to Philadelphia for this without Facebook. I know it's a very millennial thing to say. Um, and uh, the organizers did use, you know, the ye oldie Internet of the late 90s. But it was really a uh, word of mouth tapping into those community level networks of women telling women. And it all started 
with small businesswoman and grassroots activist Fila Chianisu and housing activist Asia Coney. Yeah, and reporting on this at the time, the New York Times was talking about how as fantastic a an organizer and activist as Chianisu was for this event, she was not connected to national black organizations. She was inexperienced in staging a mass rally um, and did not seek help from more seasoned promoters. And I got to say that the the tone of that Times piece from uh, 97 was kind of dismissive. Oh, yeah. All of this coverage that was happening at the time of this event is very head patty. It's very like, oh, Cool. Like some black women got together. So many. I mean, it was tremendously successful. Yeah, but still it came off. I came off uh, of those articles that we exchanged being like, uh, this, this completely underplays the point, the significance, uh, the, the ripple effects. It, it underplays all of those elements that these women had achieved and were working for. Well, that's, that's part of, the frustration, too, that you see echoed with criticism of the way that the 2017 Women's March was organized because uh, you have that double discrimination mm-hmm. um, of not only the erasure of uh, black communities, but also then the further erasure of women. Um, so people are probably more familiar with the Million Man March which took place in 1995, um, partly because it did include bigger names mm-hmm. and did, I think, get more press coverage. Um, and Chianisu and Kony took a cue from uh, the Million Man March and said, we need to do our own thing. We need a space for ourselves, partly because all of these mainstream feminist organizations are doing a terrible job of addressing those forms of double discrimination and uh, economic discrimination and so forth. They experience. So the main goals of the march was to call for better education and better health care in black communities um, and also support black female inmates transitioning out of prison. And uh, one of the main platforms was led by California Representative Maxine Waters, who wanted an investigation into alleged CIA supported uh, crack cocaine introduction into black neighborhoods. Yeah. And I mean, you pointed out that the black women organizing this event wanted a space that was separate from the larger women's rights movement that was ignoring them. And Chianisu told the L.A. Times that black women have taken care of everyone else since the time we've been in this country. We've taken care of white women, white men, white children, our own men, our own children. And now it's time that we take care of ourselves. And that exact same thing happened on November 8th, 2016, you know, looking at the exit poll data. And so I can absolutely understand why Chianisu would look at this current march and it's like, uh, same as it ever was, y'all, same as it ever was. And what's what's crazy to me and we've already sort of touched on this but what's crazy to me is that this 1997 march this whole event has largely been 
ignored. We we already talked about how the tone of those articles of the time was was very patting these women on the head and like, Ugh, all right, I guess like black women are marching or something. I don't know. But there was a Time magazine piece that listed this was from 2011 and it listed like eight or something women's marches. Well, it was framed as like the most significant women's marches in U.S. history. Yeah. And it had like eight of them. And the 1997 march was nowhere to be found on that list. And I was also surprised considering how large it was. Yeah. That there hasn't been more current reference and reflection um, because even if you just do a basic Google search for it now, a lot of what you find are those dated articles from the 90s. So, I mean, is it surprising that it's been whitewashed out of our popular history, our immediate popular history? No. Um, but let's not do that again. Right. I mean, we are clearly at a point in time. Well, we always are constantly. But we're we're at a point in time when we really need to be looking at women like Kony and Chianisu and saying, they're amazing. They organized an incredible movement and an incredible event. How can we be inspired from them, learn from them, not co-opt what they did, not co-opt the name, but learn from them and work with the women that have come up behind them in their wake? And I'm going to take that a step further and say, um, look at them and maybe not say anything at all and instead listen. <laughs> but repositioning the Million Woman March back into its rightful place in our popular memory is not the only historical revising that needs to be done. Yeah, women have a major role on the front lines of marches, activism, uh, protesting, rallies, uh, not just in recent history, but going way back, way back in time across the ocean. Am I sounding like too poetic about this? Basically, I'm very excited about this largely ignored history of women leading activism. Because it is really a rich history that, unfortunately, we don't have time to delve into today. But when you look back at the 1789 Women's March on Versailles, that was led by women. I mean, the name pretty much makes that obvious. But that led to the end of the monarchy. Uh, women have been leading food riots across Europe and the United States for hundreds of years, uh, including in Europe during World War One and in New York City at the time and the women's food riots in New York precipitated a boycott campaign that forced pushcart peddlers to lower their prices. Don't make women angry. That's right, pushcart peddlers. I, I can just imagine the protest I would lead if I were hangry. Um, and, I mean, this is a global thing. In 1929, you have the Igbo Women's War in Nigeria. I mean, there's an incredible history. We talk a lot about women's marches and activism, too, in our episode on International Women's Day. There's a rich labor history, too, of women in labor leading protests, strikes, and marches. And when we come right back from a quick break, we are going to spotlight some unsung heroines who have also been whitewashed and class washed out of our protest history here in the United States. So, Caroline, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned how uh, much of our imagery of American suffrage 
comes from that 1913 suffrage parade that happened on the eve of President Wilson's inauguration. And a lot of those images portray this movement as being exclusively made up of well-heeled white women. I mean, literally well-heeled. They had fabulous boots. (laughs) They did indeed. Fancy hats. What more could you want? But they were taking cues from lower socioeconomic classes who had no choice but to protest um, in order to live. But in actuality, they were by no means the first women to get out on the street and fight. No, uh, there's a fabulous woman figure in history who looks like Mother Hubbard, or what I imagine Mother Hubbard to look like, but she's a badass. And she's also known as Mother. That's right. That's right. She is. In 1903, labor reformer Mary Mother Jones. No, it's not just a website, boys and girls. Uh, also known as the most dangerous woman in America, organized 100 child factory workers to march in front of the Kensington, Pennsylvania City Hall. But not just that. They weren't just going to, like, hang out and wave some signs in front of the Kensington City Hall. She was marching these children to New York. And she actually, once they got to New York, she didn't stop. She and a delegation of five others continued on to Teddy Roosevelt's home on Long Island. And uh, she asked the children to wave their hands in the air so that spectators could see their uh, missing fingers and gnarled hands from all the dangerous work that they were doing. And Mother Jones is someone who I would love to spend more time reading about um, because she was a standout figure at the time because uh, labor reform as you well know, if you've listened to our episode on the origins of International Women's Day, was not surprisingly very dominated by men. But Mother Jones stepped in and became a central organizing figure in this. Um, so that was happening in 1903. So just for a little suffrage context, the first recognized U.S. suffrage parade didn't happen until 1908. And that's when... 23 gals from the American suffragettes, and yes, that's suffragettes because they were taking a cue from the British suffragettes, marched up Broadway. And so far, we've only been talking about white women. But again, of course, protest was not just a thing for white ladies. Uh, You have Lucy Parsons, for one example, who was a bona fide badass. Uh, She was of African, Native American, and Mexican descent. And she was super involved in the labor movement. Um, her husband was white, so that alone caused all sorts of scandal. But they were like, we don't care. We're out for the people. And uh, I can't go into all of the the details of her and her husband's joint activism until he met an untimely end. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, but even after he was killed, Parsons kept going. Uh, in 1914 and 1915, she organized a mass demonstrations against hunger and unemployment in San Francisco and then in Chicago. 
Yeah, 10,000 people with women at the front marched in San Francisco, and you had even more people participate in the 1915 Chicago hunger demonstration, which actually received support from uh, several different groups, including the American Federation of Labor, the Socialist Party, and the Hull House, started by Jane Addams. And Parsons and Mother Jones are also historically related because they were the only two women among 200 labor organizers at the founding convention of the Industrial Workers of the World. So, I mean, Parsons was an important person to highlight because um, a lot of times, too, in our women's history, when we talk about the trailblazer, the first woman doing this, she stormed the gates of, you know, this male-dominated space, we're a lot of times still talking about white men. Mm -hmm. But nope, that is not true because you have people like Parsons. Well, and just a couple years later, in 1917, we have another march that is typically left out of the history books. It is not going to be the first result in your Google image result if you're searching for women's marches. And really, all of our podcasts we do on Stuff I've Never Told You are solely based off of Google image results. Yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, if you hear a lot of references to stock imagery, that's what's going on, <laughs> which is very white. Uh, well, so the NAACP in 1917 led a silent protest parade. This was the first large-scale demonstration for civil rights in the 20th century, and it was in response to race riots happening in St. Louis, where hundreds of black people were attacked. And I think, what, 100 were killed, 100 black men were killed? Yeah, I mean, probably more than that. Um, but it is worth noting that black women and children were at the front of this 15,000 plus person March against lynching and against racism in New York. And it was silent, silent, except for men playing drums. And the truly heartbreaking thing about all of this is that the NAACP silent protest parade is yet another example of how we see history repeating itself today. I mean, that... Women's March in Washington will be happening 100 years after the silent protest parade. And what have we seen in the, the, the year and a half, you know, before that, back in St. Louis, right outside of St. Louis in Ferguson, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. have the exact same kind of racial unrest happening. And of course, not just in Ferguson, but around the country. And so that's part of why us Resituating these major, major events in our history is so crucial because if we're blind to these things, we, especially as people who are, are, are not living those experiences, we're not people of color. Um, it's, we're short sighted and suddenly think that this is a new fight for civil rights. But if we shift back to looking at those well-heeled suffragists in the United States, it's not like a bunch of women decided it was cool to march all at the same time. I mean, there were a lot of women who were still like, I'm not so sure it's very classy of us to be walking in the streets being vocal. Yeah, because only women of working class or prostitutes would actually deign to be walking in the streets. So 
You have folks like Carrie Chapman Cat, who is well known in suffrage history, uh, who was not about to march uh, in 1909. She said, we do not have to win sympathy by parading ourselves like the street cleaning department. Oh, Lord. But. Again, I mean, we see these issues of race and class repeating themselves over and over again. So seriously, 2017, maybe can this be the year we start to at least uh, own up to that? Pay attention to history. Uh-huh. Yeah. Realize we've already been here before. Yeah. Uh, back in 1913, talking about that Woodrow Wilson inauguration eve suffrage march, Alice Paul, the organizer, was really worried uh, what would happen if she allowed black women to march with her fellow suffragist. Uh, she said, as far as I can see, we must have a white procession or a Negro procession or no procession at all. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but uh, anti-lynching crusader and fantastic journalist and activist Ida B. Wells uh, wanted to march with the Illinois faction, but they totally freaked out and said that she needed to walk in the back of the parade. But this is the parade, right, where she stepped out from the crowd into the front of the march. Yes. Yeah. Ida B. Wells was not going to sit in the back of the bus. Nope. Um, and there were not because of uh, the straight-up racism that uh, especially, and again, whew, we are two white women sitting in a, a studio bubble in the South, and it was largely suffragists from the South as well mm-hmm. who were not cool with black women marching alongside them. Well, which harkens back to Susan B. Anthony, who, yes, she is deemed a feminist and suffragist heroine, but she made it very clear that she was going to fight for white women's rights before she would fight for the rights of black people. Yeah. And it's like and it, uh, it's so. It's so complicated, too, because she and Frederick Douglass, famed abolitionist, were buds, you know, and and even upon his death, um, she was heartbroken. But it came a point with the 15th Amendment when she was like, you know, I'll die before I support more men's rights, Negro men's rights and not uh, women's rights. And at that point. Douglas was like, okay, Suze. <laughs> Suze. All right, Suze. You, you lost me now. But while the, the racism in the suffrage movement is better known, I think, these days, uh, when it comes to that iconic parade, um, a lot of that stuff has been sort of, you know, just like brush aside, like, let's not talk about it. These are some really great Google image results. Let's not taint <laughs> that. Um, but you do have a, People like Mary Walton, who was a founding member of the Delta Sigma Theta black sorority, who, along with um, I think it was a little over a dozen of those founding members, marched as well. They were like, you know what? <laughs> Some of these ladies are hella racist, but we don't care. We want the vote. Um but on top of that, something that I, I learned through our research was how violent the parade quickly became because uh, this was also um, drunk white dudes who were partying it up because of inauguration. And suddenly you have all these thousands of ladies tiptoeing down the street. I shouldn't say tiptoeing. They were marching down the street, parading down the street and they started throwing stuff at them, spitting on them. Some were outright assaulted. Uh, and they sent like a hundred women 
to the hospital and they had to call in the cavalry <laughs> for crowd control. Helen Keller, y'all, was at the parade and she was like, I, I cannot handle this. This is like way too much chaos. <laughs> um, meanwhile, though, we, we are told about it through our, our history as just this thing that went off without a hitch and, and look at all these ladies marching for their rights. Whereas it was, Total chaos. Um, but we don't hear about that 1917 NAACP march, which went off without a hitch. If you look right. at the New York Times reports on that march, the reporters are astonished at not only the silence, but also just how seamless it was. So if we march into Ooh. January 21st, 2017, mm-hmm. With our historical vision corrected at least a bit, there's still the question of the impact. What is the biggest impact this one day can have? I mean, can this really change anything? It can. Not by itself, though. It can if all of the people who are angry and impassioned enough to go march and make themselves visible continue that momentum through the rest of the year, which is what you and I talked about. It's it's less just showing up at the march and checking that box and more. Yeah, sure. Show up at the march. Allow yourself to be motivated and inspired and take those feelings of motivation and inspiration back into your community and help your community and advocate and activate. That's not a thing. Sure it is. Is it? Okay. And advocate and activate for people who don't live in the same, uh, I guess, like studio bubble of privilege that you and I are in right now. A recording studio bubble of privilege. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, I am preaching to my own choir because this is a personal challenge that that I need to follow up on as well. I have done minimal feet on the street activism. I get, quote unquote, too busy to do so many things that I should be doing. Um, and e- even just in terms of setting up, you know, recurring donations mm-hmm. to organizations that I can't necessarily participate in all the time because we can't do all of the things all the time. Um, so this has been definitely a wake up call for me. And I hope that, uh, listeners, you understand that that I, I am here. <laughs> I am here too. Um, by no means am I saying this from a position of like, be like me because I've pretty much been a, a perfect, perfect white ally in, in all ways. Um, and we have to remember that this also doesn't start January 21st. Right. This starts now. Yeah. We have to start doing what we can right now. Um, as Natasha Vargas Cooper, who's a journalist and she was a former organizer and field coordinator for the Service Employment International Union, uh, emphasized in a piece for the New York Times Room for Debate a while back when they were uh, really focusing in on the Occupy movement and also contrasting it to the Tea Party movement, which was happening simultaneously. 
Vargas Cooper wrote, at their best, protests can be an important tactic, but only a tactic as opposed to an effective strategy. Political and social change comes only through hard, prolonged and persistent organizing, the sort of nitty gritty, painstaking and frustrating work of persuasion that few professional protesters can be bothered with. And I would jump off of that, too, and say that few like millennials in general are even used to. We're used to having things very quickly. We're used to expecting change swiftly. Yeah. And that is our measure measure of success is like, how fast can you make social justice go viral? And that's just not how our communities work. Did you see, Kristen, the document, the Google Doc that's been floating around on Twitter um, that was written anonymously by people who've worked in government and on campaigns, kind of highlighting uh, tea Party strategies for how they were able to, with a relatively small number of people, infiltrate government, influence elections, um, continue to be like really irritating to their members of Congress and keep calling, keep showing up, pull off some real good uh, colonial costumes. <laughs> yeah. If only that's all it were. We're just cosplay. Some some try try a uh, tricorn hat. Well, a tricorn tricorn. Yeah. Three three ears of corn yes. strung together. That's all we need. Exactly. Well, um. This doc is circulating to encourage people, presumably like some of the people who are going to the march in January, to take more long-term, slow and steady, effective action. Uh, Michael Kazin, who's a professor at history at Georgetown uh, and a co-editor of Dissent and the author of American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation, also wrote a piece in 2012 for The New York Times Room for Debate. And said that as the Tea Partiers have showed, to have political impact in the short term, one must also know how to exploit the forms you already have. In other words, calling your senators, your representatives, working within government, whether you are running for office or or going out and encouraging others to run for office. Maybe you're supporting people with donations. Maybe you're encouraging brilliant people that you know to run. Um, but... The desire and the drive to just blow up the current system um, is something that's like really clickbaity and can get a lot of really great headlines and think pieces written about it. But to affect long term change and dismantle those long term systems of oppression, it takes longer term work as well. So I think we've emphasized the point a lot that uh, this thing takes work and we need to do Better, especially uh, the more privilege we enjoy, um, probably the blinder we are to a lot of issues. And that does not make us bad people. It just means that we have some work to do. You know, again, like, don't take it personally. Don't take it as a character attack um, unless you are a poor character, in which case <laughs> do better. Um, so what is your plan for the protest, Caroline? So uh, I'm going to go up to D.C. with a group of women and my boyfriend, too. He's a boyfriend dog is a great ally. Um, but I'm going to start, I think, the night before by talking to these women, some of whom I don't know and have never met, about why they are marching. Because in those early conversations and planning stages of this march, I think a lot of what was missing, like, yes, solidarity. And yes, women's rights and human rights and let's get 
a bunch of different people together to be visible. But like, I think a lot of what was missing was a conversation about why, like, what are we trying to accomplish and how are we going to use this event as a springboard for future action? And so one of my first steps that I want to do related to this March is talk to those women that I'm going to be sharing a room with, essentially, and hopefully getting some inspiration from them. Once I go to the march, I plan to be carrying a sign with my mittens. What's your sign going to say? Well, so I want it's got to be a two sided sign, right? Like it's got to be dynamic. Is one side pussy grabs back? Um, that's my whole being. So I think one side I'm going to I need to like come up with a pithy something or other. But like one side I need to indicate like, hey, Cheeto with a wig. I'm watching you. I'm here. I'm not going away. I'm going to keep my eye on you and fight back. And the other side, again, need to come up with something a little more concise than all of that. But I want to indicate that I am here to be an ally and that this march is about solidarity. And I want to put my I want to put my put your mittens where your mouth is. Yes. Yes. That's perfect. Um, and I don't know what you can do with that message with just a sign, but I am going to try to indicate that those are my goals, that I am here as a body that's in front of Donald Trump's administration to show that I'm here and I'm not going to stop paying attention to the things that they're doing, but also that I am using this as an opportunity to show myself as an ally, someone who will do my best to be a voice and a platform for others. Hell yeah. Well, what about you? Uh, so I don't know if I'm going to go to the march, to be completely honest. And it has nothing to do with, uh, disagreeing with organization or any of the, the critiques that we've spent a lot of time talking about. Um, I, my gut just tells me that there's a lot of work to be done here where we live in Atlanta and I, wonder whether the money that I would spend traveling could be better spent because I don't have a lot of it um, could be better spent investing it in the community, you know, and in organizations um, that desperately, desperately, desperately need support, especially at the grassroots level. And I'm hoping that there's going to be some kind of demonstration in tandem with the Women's March. I know that there are satellite marches happening all around the country for people who can't afford to take off time from work to go travel to Washington, which if that's the case, y'all, seriously, don't beat yourself up over that. It is it is also a matter of privilege to to be able to go and even attend this. And I, and I think what, uh, we've heard from some listeners on this, that very topic. Um, but I think this is a great moment too for people to kind of turn inward and think, okay, well, I want, what can I do to help others to dismantle these systems? Well, okay, I can't afford to go to DC or I can't afford to donate hundreds of dollars to various charities and nonprofits. But what are the things? that I have within my power to do to change at least my corner of the world for the better. And I think that this serves, even if you can't go, or even if you do, that this is the perfect opportunity to be thinking about that and put those steps in action. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, definitely the latter part of that because we, <laughs> I, I'll say I'll pers- I'll personalize this. I have thought too much and acted too little. Um, so my money where my mouth is is going right now to um, recurring monthly donations because I can't drop a, a bucket of dollars, a bucket of ducats at a time. So I have monthly recurring donations set up right now to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which if you are not familiar with them, check them out. They are doing such important legal advocacy work um, to protect and preserve civil rights. I just said protect and preserve. Those are synonyms, but y'all get it. Um, and I'm also doing the same thing to the Center for Reproductive Rights uh, because they also are on the front lines of suing, for instance, Texas uh, right now as we're recording this um, f- f- to stop their proposed fetal tissue funeral law that they're trying to pass. Um, so really trying to focus in on um, supporting the people like them, the ACLU and others who are really going to be on the front lines of all of the legal fights that are going to be coming up, especially with um, the appointment of a new Supreme Court justice, which is really unsettling. Um, and so far here in Atlanta, I'm gearing up to begin volunteering at the Feminist Women's Health Collective. Um, and there's a waiting list. So I need to find another <laughs> another uh, outlet. Um, but there's a waiting list to become a Planned Parenthood clinic escort. Um, as a volunteer escort, because, you know, uh, people need escorts in through through all the protesters outside of Planned Parenthood clinics. So that's where I'm at right now. And it does not by any means feel like enough. Um, so I just want to keep challenging myself. And I got to say that you all listening have been so inspirational for Helping me recognize the ways that I need to and can do better and um, also inspiring for all of the work that that you all do in your day to day. So thanks. And now we want to hear from you. Are you going to the march? Are you fired up about activism? What uh, causes are you supporting? Um, how are you using the resources that you have? to make the change you want to see in the world. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. I also suggest that you follow us as individuals on Twitter. I'm at Kristen Conger. I am at the Caroline Irv. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I have a letter here from Kidissa in response to our Retail Hell episode. Uh, she says, I started writing you a letter about just-in-time scheduling only to fall into a deep hole at work of my employees not showing up for their shifts and not calling or answering calls about their absence. It all made me realize the real reason so many managers fall into just-in-time scheduling. You unfortunately can't always count on your employees to follow through when you most need them. That's absolutely not to say that all of my employees are flaky or unreliable. The vast majority are wonderful. But in every store, there's a wild card that could easily swing towards that detrimental, unreliable state. 
I'm the manager of a store near several ski areas with both a ton of tourists year-round and a vast majority of my workforce only available part-time with sometimes up to three other jobs. Because of the difficult climate for hiring and retention, the living wage in my area for one adult, no children, is eleven seventy-eight an hour, and the majority of biz- businesses in the county pay just cents above that. There are few employees that remain in their positions for any real amount of time to earn annual or merit raises, let alone benefits such as insurance. I make an above-livable salary for the area and often feel guilt at seeing my employees struggle to get by, though my efforts to get them overtime hours and to a point where I can give them a sizable raise often end with employees that don't care enough to stick it out. And in the severe shortage of decent, affordable housing and childcare here, it is no wonder people are constantly in flux in all aspects of their lives. As much as I would love to be able to write my store schedules more than three weeks out, the fact is, if I do, I end up having to make drastic changes later on or anyway, which is maybe worse for my employees than not having schedules at all. It all stinks, but it absolutely is the reality for many retail managers and in turn for their employees. I hope one day in the not-so-far future, I'm able to say that I have a stable staff with schedule six weeks out. But until then, I guess we all just have to keep pushing forward, working to resolve the other factors that contribute to the need for just-in-time scheduling. Thanks for all you do. Your voices have given me so much hope and joy in dark times over the last year. Well, thank you, Kadissa. So I have a letter here from Nicole about our Retail Hell episode. And she is studying fashion history and wrote in to clear up some historical details about the millinery and haberdashery departments in uh, that original department store that we referenced. So... Nicole writes, while we tend to think of them as gendered today, that was not the case back then. Milliners dealt in anything fashionable that was not fitted to the body, sort of like accessories. In fact, it was the development of department stores that caused milliners to switch to only selling hats. Men, women, and children would all shop in these stores. They would sell shirts, stockings, shoes, buckles, jewelry, hats, fans, children's gowns, and so much more. They even sold fashionable items for your life and house like tobacco, tea, or even tea sets and tables. Much of what they sold was imported and pre-made. It was actually an almost entirely female-owned and employed trade. Man milliners were often made fun of and even had satirical plays written about them. It was a highly lucrative business to run and own, and many women did very well for themselves. Of course, the employees were often pretty young women to get young men to do more shopping, but that's a whole other subject unto itself. Haberdashers, on the other hand, sell what we might term notions for sewing and the like. At this point, people were not sewing their own clothing, but went to tailors and mantua makers instead. You wouldn't just show up at the door, but would have purchased your fabrics, linings, interlinings, buttons, trim, and even thread for whatever you wanted stitched up. Haberdashers would have sold much of that as well as needles, pins, and more. The idea of them selling men's attire is actually a more modern American concept. So overall, that retail store would have been a slightly expanded version of a milliner's shop, but giving it a different name would make it more acceptable for men to be running it. Oh, I hope you found this little tidbit of history interesting, uh, Nicole, to say the least. Milliners and mantua makers are absolutely fascinating as a study of feminist history if you ever want to look into them. And my answer is yes and yes. So thank you, Nicole, for giving us that little history lesson and 
Listeners, we want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, you can head over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.